Good morning. My name is Summer. Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 29. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 6. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through second grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the front of the room to join Kids Commons outside. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you guys again. Good morning again. My name is Matt again. I'm one of the lead pastors here at, I am the lead, one of the lead pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Um, as is our custom, I want to invite you into a moment of pause, into a moment of silence to take some deep breaths, to take some deep breaths, and to allow the Lord to speak to us this morning, to see what God has for us this morning. So join me in a moment of reflection. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for you this morning. We're thankful that you are real to us, that you are present to our lives, that you care for us, that you know us, and you love us deeply, and that you are here to set us free from the things that ensnare us, from the poverty that afflicts us, from the blindness that we suffer from. I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see your will for us in this world. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. So the most expensive possession that I own other than our house or our cars is a guitar. I bought it 20 years ago from a talented musical friend, so it's a much nicer instrument than I have any business actually owning myself. Sadly, for most of the year, my guitar sits in its case, unopened, unplayed, but every now and then, and this just happened last night, <laughs> every now and then, um, every three or four or five months or so, and it really happens around dinner time and bedtime, so sorry, Megan. Um, I bust out the guitar. Maybe I just want to remember if I can learn, or if, I want to see if I still know how to play Love Yourself by Justin Bieber. I've got to check that out every six months or so. 
I grab my guitar, my left hand forms a G chord, and I strum with conviction. Peter, if you'd be so kind. Oh, right? Just give me that one more time. Okay. That's what it sounds like. Thank you, Peter. Keep that in your mind. Um, I'm playing the right chord. My hands are in the right position, but my guitar is out of tune because for months it's been in its case, enduring temperature fluctuations, atmospheric shifts, countless kids stomping on the case, and the result of all of this is that the strings are out of tune. (laughs) They're like, we've never done that. And as we've just heard, six notes out of tune with each other sounds pretty bad. Sandpaper on your eardrums, fingernails on a chalkboard, cats howling at the top of their lungs. And I can usually tune the strings pretty quickly to make it sound at least okay, but if I want to do it right, if I want to do this right, I get my tuner out and I go through each string, one by one, and then back through each string, one by one by one again, to get them to sound like the notes they're supposed to represent. E, A, G, B, D, E. Those are the notes my guitar, my guitar is supposed to sound like. So I get it all situated, looking pretty good. Bieber, here I come. Still, the next time, the next time I play my guitar, I know it's going to be out of tune again. There's this cycle, right? I tune the strings, they drift out of tune. I tune them again, and again they drift out of tune. To be useful at all, my fancy, expensive, amazing guitar needs to be constantly recalibrated back to its original notes. And I think the same is true of us. One moment, we are in tune. We're rolling, flourishing, motivated, living in line with our priorities. We're eating well, we're sleeping well, we're working out. We sound good. And then, over time, we drift. We just drift. We got trips to take, we got summer camps to go to, family events, sports, movies, concerts. We got beach days to go to. We got jobs, we got house projects, game nights, church gatherings. And when we do have a moment to spare, We're sitting at a red light. We're waiting for the microwave to ding. We're walking the dog around the block. We're on our phones, right? Posting and scrolling and skimming and liking and loving and crying laughed emojiing, right? And then the pasta is just boiling over on the stove and the kid is crying and the cat's barfing and we are overwhelmed. And we're just trying to be a decent friend in this world, right? We're just trying to be a decent spouse. We're just trying to be a decent parent. We're trying to be a decent citizen, a decent human being. But it's so hard sometimes, in part because, like my neglected guitar, we are drifting out of tune. Without us even realizing it, often we start to produce sounds that do not sound good. And our internal disharmony seeps out of us, and it gets into the people around us and into the communities around us. Billions of people, all out of tune. No wonder the world sounds so bad so often, a chorus of cruelty and anger and chaos. And it's not music. It's just a bunch of noises. And they're all fighting each other for dominance. It's not a song. It's more like a groan. A groan. All of creation longing for this release from the sin that steals our song and release from the suffering that results from our song being stolen. At so many levels, we are not operating the way we're supposed to operate. We're exhausted. We're discouraged, we're lonely, we're depressed, we're medicated, we are stressed out to the max. Even coming off the summer, so many of you I've talked to are burned out and tired and exhausted and stressed out. And so we groan, we groan. 
longing to be recalibrated to the original sounds that God intended us to create in the first place. And the good news, of course, is that God is a patient and brilliant composer. God cares so much about us that he stepped into the middle of our sloppy song in order to make us into a symphony. Starting with Jesus, starting with Jesus, one person at a time, God is recalibrating the world, making us sound beautiful again. And that's what this whole sermon series that we're entering into this fall is all about. God's desire to recalibrate this world, every groaning creature in it, back to God's intended purposes. And God is right now, God is right now in this place working to make all the wrong things right again, working to tune us back to the original song. And one day, the work's going to be completed, but until that day, God has given us a few pathways to reorient us back to the song, back to being in tune. It's God's way of tuning us so that we don't have to sound so horrific, so that what we produce is good, and what we produce produces good in the world around us for all people, for all creation. There are a few calibrations, some recalibrations that have been built into God's design. We touched on one of them back in our Ruth series. A few months ago, we talked about Ruth, and one of the recalibrations in Ruth is the idea of gleaning, these gleaning laws that were there in Israel's history. The people were told to leave the edges of their field unharvested, right? So that anyone in need could just come and gather food in the edges of the field, and all would eat, and all would flourish. Gleaning. Second was Sabbath. Sabbath was a weekly observance. Sabbath happened every single week, a time of rest, a time of delight, a time of realization that God has given each of us enough. That's part of what Sabbath is, is God's given us enough. And not just like barely enough, but like enough that goes over to everyone else. Gleaning every single year, every single harvest, and then Sabbath every single week helped recalibrate people, tuning them back to God's song. And in addition to these weekly and yearly tune-ups, every 50 years, God gave the people a major overhaul. And it was called the Year of Jubilee. Fortunately, we have our very own Jubilee uh, here in our midst. <laughs> uh, well, she's not actually here this morning. They're on vacation. But we do have our very own Jubilee. And thankfully, she don't wait 50 years. She actually shares her enjoyment and enthusiasm about life with us about every 50 seconds. So hallelujah for Jubilee, if you guys know her. But in the Bible, Jubilee comes around every 50 years. And it lasted for an entire year. And it recalibrated society to reflect the heart of God. Debts were canceled during Jubilee. Slaves were set free during Jubilee. The land was actually restored to its rightful and original owners during Jubilee. And at the heart of all of this was this promise of liberation, this promise of economic and social freedom. The world itself was rebooted, restarted, so that all people could experience God's blessing. And in the passage that Summer just read for us, Jesus is launching a new and a permanent Jubilee. For context, we're in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has endured 40 days of temptation in the wilderness and now he's about to start his ministry. Jesus is about to start his whole ministry. And the very first thing that he does is open Isaiah and declare his mission statement. This is Jesus' mission. Everything Jesus will accomplish through his teachings and miracles and death on the cross is to achieve this purpose. This purpose. You ready for it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, for he has anointed me, commissioned me, to bring good news to the poor. And he's sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, and that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will go free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. The time of the Lord's favor, it's come right now. This is Jubilee language. Jesus is making it abundantly clear that a recalibration is underway. And from that day forward, people are going to be free. They're going to be free from whatever was holding them captive, from whatever was bending them out of shape and making them sound so miserable. Jesus had come to make things right. 
to retune society to the way that God intended society to sound. Now, sometimes we debate this kind of freedom, right? What's Jesus actually talking about here? Is Jesus talking about freedom in a spiritual sense? Like freedom from sin, freedom from our self-centeredness, freedom from fear, freedom from isolation, freedom from the dominion of death that's present in all of our lives? Or is Jesus talking about freedom in a tangible, sort of external sense? Institutional slavery just being ended. Rescuing children from abusive labor practices, eradicating racism, reforming our systems of incarceration. Is Jesus talking about healing our bodies? About overturning tyrannical governments that are unjust? Is Jesus talking about the salvation of our souls? Is Jesus talking about social justice? Yes, right? Yes, like I think he's talking about both. We itch to separate these two things all the time, to emphasize one over the other, to categorize freedom, to categorize salvation with theological mastery, to stand over these terms and decide what these terms mean. And I think Jesus intends us to stand under these terms, to let these terms define us and tell us how to be in the world. He wants freedom to shape and define us. So these concepts aren't separate concepts. They're actually integrated into this recalibration that makes us whole people, that makes us more like Jesus. Spiritual freedom and every other kind of freedom go hand in hand. It's not either or. It's yes and. It's yes and. We did a whole sermon series on yes and like two years ago. What we do is based on who we are, yeah? And who, what we do impacts who we are. The two things are inseparable. So yes, Jubilee had a spiritual impact. It was a season of worship, a season of internal renewal. It was a celebration of God's blessing. It was a time of rest for our souls. And it was a titanic recalibration that brought social and economic change so that God's people would produce justice and mercy and love, not just within their own hearts, but also in the world around them. Jubilee changed people's souls, and Jubilee changed people's circumstances. Jubilee changed people's souls, and it changed people's circumstances. If you're curious about all the ways that Jubilee retuned uh, God's people in the Old Testament, dig into Leviticus 25. It's God's vision for a just and good society, Leviticus 25. And here's the thing about Jubilee. It was unparalleled. It was unparalleled in the ancient world. In the ancient Near East, a few kings, notably Hammurabi we know, proclaimed a special moment of release, a special moment of liberation. Slaves were released, debts were canceled, but these were always one-off events, usually done right at the beginning of a king's reign to demonstrate just how powerful and generous and benevolent the king really was. I got it right. Um, But unlike Jubilee in Israel, the land in Babylon was never redistributed to anyone else. The land in Egypt or Assyria was never given back to original owners. So Israel stands out as the only nation where release was to happen again and again. The only nation where this was supposed to happen over and over again, systematically. Every Sabbath, every gleaning, every jubilee, justice was restored. Freedom wasn't dependent upon a human leader's decision. It was created by God to ensure that the most vulnerable members of society were not neglected or abused or doomed to generational poverty. Every Israelite who lived a normal lifespan would experience at least one opportunity during their life to erase the oppression of their circumstances and start all over again. God's kingdom, like no other kingdom, was supposed to be a sanctuary for all, especially the most vulnerable. So when Jesus pronounces the year of the Lord's favor, he's broadcasting that promise of liberty. Anyone trapped, anyone enslaved, anyone blinded, anyone oppressed, you don't have to wait 50 years. I see you. I'm right here. I'm here to to free you to set you free, and the crowd goes wild. 
Well, sort of, right? Depends on who you are, right? For those who are blind or poor or sick or enslaved, for those experiencing injustice or oppression, this is really great news. The best news, rejoicing in the streets kind of news. But for those who think they're doing just fine, like those who were present in the synagogue that day, Jesus' words were threatening, scary, uncomfortable. They liked the song the way it was. They didn't like Jesus changing it or suggesting that they sounded bad, the nerve, that they were the ones singing out of tune with God's song. But they were out of tune, and they had been for a really long time, which is why Jesus brings up the widow of Zarephath in Naaman. Now, these two are interesting figures to bring up for Jesus in this moment. They stand out in the history of Israel because they experienced God's blessing, even though they were not Israelites. They were foreigners. They were outsiders, but they trusted God. So Luke 26, 426, the widow of Zarephath was a poverty-stricken woman. She was a poor widow. And she gave the very last bits of food that she had in her entire home to the prophet Elijah when he was really hungry. And yet, even though she'd given away all her food to him, every time she reached into the jar, there was more flour in it. Every time she reached in, there was more. So Elijah had food because of her generosity, and her family had food because of God's generosity. God saw the faith of this vulnerable woman, and he took care of her. Naaman. Uh, at this time in Israel, many people had leprosy. It's the time of the prophet Elijah this time. And there was only one person in all the land who God healed from his leprosy. And his name was Naaman, and he was a Syrian, not an Israelite. And yet, through the efforts of one of his servant girls, he believed that God could help him, and he came to God for help, and God saw his affliction, and God healed him. Now, there was famines, and there was sickness all throughout Israel, but most people in Israel didn't experience God's blessing. Why? Because they'd stopped trusting God and looking to God for blessing. And this is one of the ways that I think we also drift out of tune over time, we can forget how much we need God. We can forget how much we need God. Things happen, pressure mounts, we get busy, and we start to take God for granted. And we can start to feel self-sufficient. I got this. We can start to feel in control of our lives, or at least have the desire to have lots of control. We can feel entitled, even. And once we start to feel entitled, we start to create divisions between us and everybody else. We deem ourselves worthy, and we deem everybody else unworthy. We deem ourselves deserving, and we deem everyone else undeserving. Therefore, okay to kind of exploit. And like Israel, we are out of tune with God's song so often. Because God has always intended freedom for all people, not just one group of people. God brought healing to Naaman and abundance to the widow Zarephath because they were humble enough to receive it because they were humble enough to receive it. The poor, the blind, the hurting, they are often more willing to accept help from God or others. The idea that God would save any humble person, the idea that God would save any humble person, Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, well, that idea was just so threatening to the Jews that were listening to Jesus that day that they tried to throw him off a cliff. They could not or would not accept the scope of God's inclusivity. Their prejudice was enslaving them. And so they didn't experience the freedom that Jesus was offering to them that day. If we're going to be part of God's kingdom, if we're going to be part of God's kingdom, then we've got to stay humble enough ourselves to accept that we are the blind ones 
that we are the ones who are poor, that we are the ones who are captive, that we're captive to false ideas about status, that we're blind to injustices, that we are poor in compassion, and that we're afraid oftentimes to actually trust God with our whole lives. And if we are willing to see ourselves that way, if we're willing to see ourselves as blind, as poor, as captive, then we're actually much more likely to see others that way too. Not in a demeaning way, but in a we're all in this together, compassionate way. Israel tried to keep God's blessing to themselves, and God wanted them to give God's blessing away to others. Israel tried to keep God's blessing, and God wanted them to give it away. So Jesus did what Israel failed to do. He stood up in a church, and he boldly extended jubilee to all people, and it was unprecedented. Among all the messianic figures that appeared in the first century, no one proclaimed salvation and freedom across cultural lines. No one proclaimed salvation and freedom across ethnic lines or gender lines. Nobody did that except for Jesus. God's heart is to free people from their chains, spiritual and physical. And in this series, I'm so excited to share how ordinary men and women all throughout Scripture, with limited abilities, with limited resources, helped groaning people experience God's freedom in their lives. Those are all future sermons. Today, what I really want us to all hear is that God's freedom is for us. I want you to hear that God's freedom is for you. God hears your groaning. He does. And God cares deeply about you. And God came to set it right. And Jesus proclaims your freedom by his life and death and resurrection. He accomplishes that freedom. If you're humble enough to accept God's God will heal your blindness. God will address your poverty. God will set you free. Or to come back to my metaphor, God will recalibrate your out-of-tune song, your out-of-tune strings, so that you are in harmony with yourself as God created you to be, so that you, a human being created in God's image and recreated through Christ's redemption, can play God's song the way it's supposed to be played. And when we sound good in here, then those out there have at least a chance to hear God's song too. Even if we're not perfectly in tune, even if we're, we're just kind of starting to learn the melody, we can still sing the parts that we know how to sing. And the way we get better is through practice, through reading the word, through prayer, through our community, through the Holy Spirit. We can learn and continue to learn this song. I, I know the church is not standing out in the best ways right now in the world. But I believe that by following Jesus and staying humbly receptive to the Holy Spirit, we can stand out in the midst of a cruel and unjust and angry and greedy world, that we can all sing God's song together. Uh, speaking of singing together, speaking of singing together this summer, uh, the 21 Webbles on my side of the family, there we all are, went to a beach house in North Carolina for um, a vacation. I say vacation in quotes loosely. Because <laughs> 10 kids, or 10 adults and like 11 kids, like that's a lot of kids, and all the kids were 10 years old and younger, so it was loud, it was chaotic, it wasn't super vacation-y, but it was at the same time very wonderful. Um, we were all together. My dad recently retired from his job this last year, and since we were all together, we thought we'd celebrate him and the accomplishments of his long career. So we got some cakes and had some ice cream, but I felt like we needed something to punctuate the moment, to just let dad know how much he meant to us all. So I was remembering back to my days at Canicut Camps in Missouri where we'd celebrate someone with a standing ovation. <laughs> what are the odds? We just did standing ovation. Standing ovation. Or as we called it at camp, we called it a standing O. 
And instead of clapping our hands in applause, we would all stand up, and we would hold our arms over our head to make an O, and we would, for as long as we could, chant, O, just as long as we all could. Get it? A standing O, right? Pretty great, right? Okay, so I decide I'm going to give Pops the good old standing O. So I stand up, <laughs> I circle my arms above my head, and I start, oh, and sure enough, everyone joins in. Except I had not considered the fact that to all of the children's, my oh was not a creative camp cheer, but the opening line of, can you guess it, SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> That's right. The kids hijacked my standing ovation for Pops and turned it into who lived in a pineapple on a dusty SpongeBob SquarePants. And it was so loud <laughs> and so spontaneously joyful that instead of fighting for my standing ovation, I just surrendered and joined the SpongeBob chorus. And I know that's a, such a dumb example, <laughs> but all week I've had this picture in my mind of some radical, nothing-to-lose Jesus followers standing up and launching into this song, this fantastic, wild declaration of the freedom that she's experienced in Christ. And maybe it's not quite the song I was expecting it to be. It's different than I thought it would sound. Maybe even threatening or scary or uncomfortable, but it's also full of joy and it's full of freedom and it's... I know it. I know it's just a better song than the song I was going to sing. It's the song that we're supposed to sing. So rather than fight it or throw Jesus off a cliff because of it, we let God recalibrate us. It's not super comfortable. It's not easy to learn, but we join in with this crazy song, a song of healing and a song of salvation and a song of restoration and love, a song that radiates from the church to change the very fabric of our society. A song so loud that all the neighbors hear it and they stop what they're doing to check it out. And that's the scale that I want to shoot for in this sermon series, the neighborhood level. Not global, not national, not even regional, but the neighborhood level. That we fight for the freedom for all of our groaning neighbors, all of the people living right here in our own backyards. Amen?